Good morning. As you, um, you might have noticed if you've been around over the last several months, we've been talking quite a bit about what we call developing an exodus mindset in order to understand the Bible better. And our reasoning for that is that, like their Old Testament counterparts, the New Testament writers and their first audiences were either Jewish themselves or else they at least had a very good understanding of the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, which was their entire Bible. And the first Christian missionaries, too, were also Jews. And they came to the task with a whole layer of assumptions which we would do well to try and understand. For them, the controlling narrative of the entire Bible was, in fact, the Exodus story. So last year, we undertook a sermon series which we wittily entitled The Exodus Express, all about the first half of the book of Exodus. Then last autumn, we had the opportunity of developing some Exodus themes in our series on the book of Hebrews. And among those we particularly noticed were that all the earth and all the peoples on it belong to God, that he's always very concerned to keep his covenant promises, particularly the ones to Abraham and his descendants, that God's plan is a man, in this case Moses, And uh, we were just singing, weren't we, you've set your hope in me. That can work either way. It's not just that he's put hope in our hearts so that we are hopeful. God's hope for the world is actually set in us. And lastly, that his overarching purpose was to create a people for his own possession, through whom he would reach out to the rest of the world and bring them to himself. And we were reminded of that last point a fortnight ago in our reading of 2 Corinthians 5, what Paul calls the ministry of reconciliation, which is God's but which he shares with us. As we say in the Kingdom Vineyard, helping people make connections with God. If you missed that talk and you're part of this church, uh, please get it on the podcast. It covers a lot of themes that we're going to come back and back to in the next few months. In working out his cosmic plan, the very first thing that, Jesus, that God did was to recruit Moses, an old man of 80. So you never passed it. His life story so far was princeling, turned murderer, turned fugitive, turned shepherd. He was, we might think, not an obvious choice as a world changer. But God chose him to become the deliverer of his people from slavery in Egypt. Moses' brief, in a nutshell, was to set people free to serve God. And that's an emphasis we would do well to remember. God would then form those people into a nation capable of bearing his name with honour and indeed distinction. After warning Pharaoh repeatedly through Moses, God sent a series of plagues to make his point, culminating in the worst of them all, the Passover event, which was the death of the firstborn. Only the Israelite families were saved, smearing the blood of a lamb on their doorposts. And that finally convinced Pharaoh to set them free. And the Passover has been an annual celebration for Jewish people ever since that day. Yet even after that, Pharaoh changed his mind and pursued Israel as far as the Red Sea. There, God famously parted the Red Sea for Israel to cross, but then it closed over the Egyptian army and that was the end of them as my mother used to say. The people then journeyed on, fed with daily bread from heaven, and eventually arrived at Mount Sinai. There Moses climbed up the mountain to meet with God in the impenetrable darkness 
that covered the mountaintop. And God, in a voice which was clearly audible in the valley below, gave him the Ten Commandments. That was a foundational moment in the history of Israel, celebrated ever since in the festival of Pentecost. As God gave this gathering of interrelated tribes a single set of laws to live by, he was forming them from a rabble into a nation, as he promised in one of our key verses, which is in chapter 19 of Exodus, verses 5 and 6. If you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be a particular treasure to me from among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This Pentecost event at Sinai is the moment of covenant where Israel first became that kingdom and nation. But as we noticed in Hebrews, it happened long before they actually had a land to live in. And like them, we too are saved not directly into the promised land of heaven, but into the wilderness experience of what Hebrews calls these last days, before the great and faithful day, day, the day of judgment. That then was the original meaning of Pentecost, the giving of the law that made Israel into a nation. But there was also a second great turning point in history, which you can read about in Acts 2, another Pentecost, when God sent his Holy Spirit to empower the first disciples. And to the Western Christian mind, it might not be immediately obvious, but to the Exodus mindset, which all the disciples shared, the significance of the timing was dramatic. This was a second historic Pentecost, this time not of the law, but of the Spirit. And Peter immediately links it in his following speech to the last day's prophecy of Joel. The first Pentecost formed God's chosen people into a nation on its way to conquering and creating a homeland, a kingdom worthy of God's name. The second Pentecost formed God's chosen people into a church, on its way to conquering and creating a homeland and the kingdom of God throughout the earth. Read in the light of Hebrews, the Exodus narrative constantly reminds us that this is where we now live in these last days. And as we return to Exodus this morning, I want us to take a slightly different approach from last time. The Exodus Express rushed through, as it were, the unfolding story of chapters 1 to 20, with just time to notice various events through the train window as we whistled past. Our interim destination was Sinai, and we paused there for our Hebrews series to bring what we'd seen in Exodus bang up to date in the New Testament. So here we are at Mount Sinai, about to embark on the second half of the book, which actually has much less movement in it. So I want to approach chapters 21 to 20 as less Exodus Express and more Exodus Espresso, a distillation of the major themes rather than a journey through the narrative. We read in 2 Corinthians a couple of weeks ago that we are supposed to be the aroma of God to the world. And for the purpose of this series, I want to concentrate on seven principal flavours of the people of God. The first of these flavours 
that which the second half of Exodus presents with us with is simply holiness. What does God want of us? What does it look like to be a holy people, a people of holiness? Today we're going to be looking briefly at what is called the Book of the Covenant, from Exodus 20, verse 22, right down to 23:33. If you do have a Bible with you or a telephone, uh, please do skim read along with me to verify that I'm not making things up. Time is not going to permit us to read it all, you'll be glad to hear, but I will do my best to point out some of the lessons that we can find in it. But before we get to the Book of the Covenant itself, I want to begin with a look at the verses which introduce it. That's Exodus 20, verses 18 and following. And I think they're going to come up on the screen. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you've seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. I believe that this handful of verses contain three essential principles about true holiness. So I think it's a good idea to look at these before we begin. Then we're going to take a very brief overview of the following three chapters, the actual Book of the Covenant, where I want to suggest that we see three practical elements of the holiness. We're looking then for three essential principles and three practical elements of holiness. Three EPs and three PEs. So EP1, essential principle one, the fear of God. When we truly encounter God, as we see in verses 18, 19 and 21, it is quite likely to be a terrifying event. As witness the reactions of the visionary prophets Isaiah, Ezekiel and Jeremiah, when each of them saw the Lord. They were all overcome with a devastating sense of their own feebleness and unworthiness when confronted with the total holiness, the awesome otherness of God. Of course, it's our privilege in the Christian era to have been introduced to God in a much more accessible form, in the uh, divine humanity of Jesus. See, even in that phrase... We're actually on first name terms with God now. Not so the people of Israel at Sinai. Because the God who is love, 1 John 4 verse 8, is also a consuming fire, Hebrews 12, 29. And that second part is what they saw. Even though we now approach God with boldness, as Hebrews teaches that we must, we, shouldn't, we should try never to lose sight of this. As C.S. Lewis puts it in the Narnia stories, Aslan is not a tame lion. Not for nothing did the Israelites react as they did at Sinai. They wanted a human mediator to stand between them and this awesome God. 
And we Christians have become so used to Jesus doing that role for us that we've rather lost sight of why. They wanted everything God was offering, but they didn't want to get too close, as we now can without any fear. The point is this, I believe we would struggle less with sin if we could see God as he really is, if we really knew the God we are dealing with. And if it comes to that, I think we'd also struggle less with finding faith to pray for healing and miracles. But that's another story. We're dealing this morning about holiness. Essential principle two, that's the, the, um, the fear of God. Essential principle two is the help of God. Holiness isn't something that we struggle towards unassisted and alone. It is God's purpose for us, and he will intervene to help us if we ask him to. That's good news, isn't it? Hebrews 4.16 encourages us to come boldly to the throne of grace, not only that we may receive mercy, but also help in time of need. Grace to help us in time of need. Indeed, even we're, uh, I mean, if we're battling with sin, God is always there to help us. And even if we're not battling as hard as we might, we often find that he gives us, as 1 Corinthians 10.13 puts it, a way of escape, an obvious fork in the road where I can choose to go this direction or that direction. Here in verse 20, Moses says that God's people shouldn't fear because even this alarming manifestation, and it was, of God's presence and power, from which they now cringe in terror, has a purpose, that they should not sin. Looking at this passage, I'm bound to observe that Israel's fear was better, in one sense, than my own too casual approach at times to God. But in another sense, their terror is completely misplaced, One might say that their fear is in the wrong place. It has taken over their hearts, petrifying minds and bodies. Whereas Moses says that God has placed his fear before them. If his fear is before us, where we can see it and appreciate it, it will be difficult to slip casually into sin. But it's not supposed to reduce us to quivering jellies, begging for somebody else to talk to God because we don't want to, we're too scared. The Bible teaches, Proverbs 9, verse 10, and, and other places as well, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And it's a repeated theme of the whole Exodus narrative that this was often the case for Israel. Time and again, they got it wrong. And they had to come to fear God before they could repent of their sins and return to him. But the fear of the Lord itself is not wisdom. True wisdom has to go far beyond the fear stage. It has to get into the worship, the love, even the beginnings of understanding and imitation of God. As we see in verse 21, Moses didn't cringe away in terror like everyone else. He drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Was he unafraid? I doubt it. Was he unaware of his own sinfulness? I doubt it. But he did approach God all the same because God invited him to. He knew that it was God who was going to have to deal with his sin and all that problem. And he trusted God to do it. It's part of God's eternal plan 
to do exactly that for every one of us. And we might not always like the ways he does it, but he does remain committed to getting us there. The question is one of whether we are equally committed to becoming a people of holiness. So there's the fear of God and the help of God. Essential principle three, I believe, is the uniqueness of God. This book of the covenant starts, verse 22, as it ends in chapter 23, 33, with a warning against idols and false gods. The people have seen, verse 22, that God has spoken to them from heaven. He hasn't got any need of visible images to represent him or, or lesser gods to help him out. Unlike all the idols of Egypt and of the lands that they're about to conquer, he's a living God who speaks to them from heaven. Anything else, any earthly representation is simply not him. Anything devised by human minds and made by human hands is not an object of reverence for us. A holy nation and a kingdom of priests has to be different from all the other peoples on the earth and must have nothing to do with their gods. Well, you might have noticed that in 21st century Scotland, we're not surrounded by pagan temples. And every home we enter doesn't contain a a little shrine to household gods. But all the same, I think we are still surrounded by idols, be they houses or cars or careers or lifestyles or blogs or even Christian ministries. Their name is Legion, for they are many. And standing behind the physical or visible idols stand the false gods of our age, the ideas and values around which people gather to gain a sense of safety and superiority. And it seems to me their names often end in ism. Of course, the whole point of my favourite isms is that they should be so much better than any of yours. Capitalism, socialism, intellectualism... Anti-intellectualism, every manifestation of tribalism, from the football team to the church denomination. But to my eye, the most pervasive and pernicious of all the isms in our culture is simply consumerism. The ungodly desire for more and more stuff. These isms, and many others, can present a strikingly vivid mirror of wisdom and fulfilment. They can feel like, um, it can feel comforting to be part of a particular tribe. It gives us identity. It can feel like success to own bigger, better, faster, flashier. It can feel affirming to convince ourselves that we have the, the right or the right on politics, the right philosophy, the right education or else aggressively not to care for any of the above. But these things are not and do not lead to eternal life. Jesus says if we seek our own life, we'll lose it for sure. But if we lose it for his sake, then we'll find it. Now our idols might be benign or even helpful things in their own right. The question is, if we serve them, if we do... Chapter 23, verse 33, they become a snare to us. They distract us from the will and the voice of the God who speaks from heaven. We are members of just one tribe, the people of God. We espouse one system of belief and philosophy, 
that of Jesus. We own one thing of value above everything else, eternal life in him. Before we even begin to scan the practical elements of holiness, as defined in the Book of the Covenant, we see these three essential principles of holiness, the fear of God, the help of God, and the uniqueness of God. Now let's move on very quickly to the three practical elements. I want to suggest that holiness in Exodus Espresso really comes down to just three things, and we might find them rather surprising. Number one is treating people right. Number two is maintaining our relationship with God. And number three is obeying his voice. Practical element number one, holiness is about treating people right. These three chapters of laws, referred to in chapter 24, verse 7, as the book of the covenant, basically contain everything God expects of Israel on their side of the covenant agreement. On his side, as we've seen, is the promise from chapter 19 that they'll be his treasured possession among all the peoples of the earth, a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. This type of covenant, which is common in the ancient world, was normally made between a king or a powerful warlord and people who wanted to come under his protection. These chapters are putting flesh on the bones of God's earlier promise, way back in chapter 6 to rescue them with great power from slavery and to take them as his people and be their God, to install them in the land that was once promised but abandoned by their forefathers. Well, they've seen his power all right and they want to buy in. This is a treaty of homecoming for a long exiled people. If we really want to understand their feelings as they embrace this covenant, we, should, we could do worse than look at the desperation of those now fleeing from Syria. They're longing for some powerful saviour to return them home again and restore their fortunes. So as they look at the, the deal that God is offering, this bunch of freed slaves from Israel aren't about to disagree with the easy terms he puts before them these sensible laws for living together under God. And in fact, the vast preponderance of these laws merely establish rules for an orderly society, where the poor and the powerless are cared for and the wicked are effectively dealt with. It seems to me most Christians think of holiness as applying to a very restricted range of aspects in our lives. Principally, how much we pray, the way we speak, and our attitudes to sex. In the Book of the Covenant, holiness covers every single aspect of life and human interaction, from marriage to crop damage, from animal welfare to rates of interest on loans. I, for one, was amazed to see that here, holiness in the eyes of God is depicted in 64 rules relating to our fellow man, 11 relating to what we'd normally regard to spiritual things like Sabbaths and sacrifices, and one, albeit with subclauses, to the simple matter of obedience. So you can see why Jesus gave the Pharisees such a hard time when he saw them spiritualizing everything to the point of tithing the little pot of parsley on their windowsill while failing to look after the poor. John is making a vitally important point in 1 John 4.20 when he says, if you don't love your brother whom you have seen, how can you love God whom you've not seen? 
It is the same message as that of Jesus when he insists, Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine and other places, that the whole of the law and the prophets hangs not on one commandment, but on two. Love the Lord your God with everything in you, yes, but also love your neighbour as yourself. The principle is amply illustrated in this book of the covenant, which we're looking at today. And if you take the time to read it right through, you'll see that it goes into issues like treating well even the chap who hates you. A surprising quality for the time of uh, rights for women and slaves. Animal welfare. And care for refugees, widows and orphans. Now those who have no Exodus mindset will find it easy to mock. But in all these issues, the point we need to take home is that far from justifying slavery or unequal treatment of women, these verses actually point to a society where underprivileged people groups, particularly foreigners, are treated better than they are in any of the surrounding nations. If you compare this covenant with the various other covenants of the time, that is plain to see. So the question for us as Christians is, do we treat each other, outsiders and the dispossessed, better than the rest of the world does? Are we a people of greater integrity in business and in our speech generally? Are we more generous and forgiving than the world around us? Because that is what holiness looks like. For two and a third chapters, the remaining two practical elements of holiness only get a third of a chapter each. That's a ratio that clearly indicates the problem that we have with holiness. We want to make it all about God and little me. God wants to make it largely about us and our fellow man. <coughs> Nevertheless, practical element two, holiness is about maintaining our relationship with God. Chapter 23, 10 to 19 contain laws about Sabbaths and festivals. We're going to examine the, the Sabbath as a standalone topic later on. But the Sabbath rest, which applies, verse 12, to servants and slaves and unbelievers and animals, and even to the land itself, as well as to the observant Jew, is a matter principally of putting all our concerns to one side, one day of every week and one year in seven. This surely is a question of trust, and a question of priorities. One day every week, no work is to be done. If you were too busy to observe the Sabbath, you were too busy. This wasn't optional, because it is God who's in charge of our lives, not ourselves. If he has ordered the world ever since creation, and the creation narrative says he has, so that six days are for work and one is for rest, who are we to argue Unlike the nations around us, we trust our God and he will either provide for us or he won't. I'd say that was a strong incentive to maintain a vibrant relationship with him. These verses also establish three religious holidays a year when every man and boy in the whole nation must go on pilgrimage to appear before the Lord. This was calculated to remind all their descendants for all time of the current wilderness wanderings of their forefathers. It also reminded the whole people, whatever internal inequalities and arguments they might have to deal with, of their unity, of heritage, of identity, and of purpose. Like the Sabbath, it was a regular act of worship. And once again, we see a vital human element in this description of holiness. 
God didn't require each individual Jew to pray in his own house on these festivals. Holiness was something that was done together. And for us too, however excellent our personal devotional times might be, truly maintaining our relationship with God still requires that we gather with his people. Also like them, you might notice in verse 15, I don't know if you can possibly find it in time, it says, Try verse 15 of... No, not Exodus 15, verse 15. doesn't matter. Uh, in the, the, the series of festivals. Like them, no one should appear before God empty-handed, it says. So you go to all these festivals, but you don't go on your own. You take a little sacrifice along with you. Now, we don't do animal sacrifices anymore. We just take up a collection on a Sunday. But the point is that everyone needs to contribute something, even if we do it uh, by standing order or by online giving. It's part of maintaining our relationship with God that we meet together to worship, to contribute together to his work. That, too, is a matter of trust and priorities. That's what holiness in Exodus looks like. Practical element three, holiness is about obedience. It doesn't matter how holy I think I am if God is telling me to do something and I'm not doing it. I could be a paragon of virtue in word and deed, and I know you'd like to see that. But if God has told me to move to Dunfermline and I'm still here, I'm not living a holy life before God. Verses 20 to 23 are stuffed with wonderful promises, which I'll leave you to read for yourselves. The angel of the Lord, which scholars agree means Jesus, will guide and guard them, but they must pay careful attention to obey what he says to them. Holiness is more than just law-keeping and religious observance. It is about a living relationship of listening to and obeying Jesus. And part of this obedience, as those verses say, will consist in removing idols from the land and having nothing to do with those who worship them. Find that in verses 24 and 32. This is going to be a gradual process, verse 30. Just like the kingdom of God growing like a mustard seed or like yeast in a lump of dough. And it might be difficult at times, a confrontational process, but it will be a thoroughly blessed one. And while my God will constantly be with us, verses 25 to 31. We identified earlier on some of the principal idolatries of our age, and I'm sure you can think of a lot more. And I don't think it's any accident that our study of holiness in the Exodus mindset should end where it began, with ensuring that we worship God alone and don't get distracted by anything else. As we exercise our 2 Corinthians 5 ministry of reconciliation in the world, helping people make connections with God, we'll have to confront idolatries in our own lives and also in the lives of people who matter to us. And of course, the best way that we can do that is to behave in a way that is truly indicative of being a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. That means an exodus kind of holiness. Grounded in three essential principles, the fear of God, the help of God, and the uniqueness 
of God and exhibiting three practical elements. Treating people right, maintaining our relationship with God and day-to-day obedience to Jesus. Why don't you stand and I'll pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that um, that holiness, holiness is not as hard as we think. That you're there to help us. That that you never abandon us to deal with sin on our own. And Lord, we confess that when we, when we look at you, we see a standard that we can't attain. But we take comfort from this book of the covenant. We take comfort from seeing that it's not really that hard. That if we stay in touch with you, if we obey you, if we worship only you, if we treat each other right, the rest kind of falls into place. So would you come by your Holy Spirit now and renew our minds so that we can see the important issues as you see them. I want to pray for healing from condemnation today. I want to pray that you will silence the long-term voice of the accuser in many lives here this morning. As we come to your throne of grace, Lord, would you touch us and heal us? I believe the Lord is wanting to, to deal with uh, false guilt and real guilt in this room today. Um, But let that not be the only reason you come forward. If you're sick in body, mind or spirit, we invite you forward to to receive a touch from the Lord, a healing touch. But I think he's really wanting to to heal a lot of consciences today. Um, From crippling guilt. From that, that fear of the Lord that Israel experienced at Sinai that, that freezes and distances us from God rather than causing us to draw near to the thick darkness where he dwells in confidence that he will deal with our sin. So I invite you to come and members of home groups will pray for you. God is in the house.